Well, thanks for braving the snow and the slushy roads to get here today. It has um, been a beautiful week of ministry at our church, and it's good to be together uh, on the Lord's Day. The last week with uh, Tyler Trent funeral has just uh, created all sorts of uh, ministry opportunities that uh, we're still uh, hearing about. We had 2,000 people who were here for the service. We know that we had about 14,000 people who are watching online, and that doesn't even count the number of people who are watching via uh, entities that we don't have any way to track, news media and things of that sort. Uh, I just want to commend you as a church for the way in which you're caring for one another in the midst of this, caring for the Trent family in particular, and also just the hundreds of people behind the scenes that took this last week to make uh, that funeral happened and happened so uh, seamlessly and smooth. I want to encourage you to keep praying for the, uh, the Trent family as uh, they mourn. Um, a friend of mine uh, says that um, in the midst of losses like this, the amputation of life heals, uh, but you still are missing a limb. And that's a, a good analogy, I think, just for what the process of uh, recovering from grief uh, is all about. Today we're in John chapter 1. And we're continuing our series uh, in the book of John, looking particularly at the way in which John wants us to see some things about Jesus. John wants us to behold particular traits, particular miracles, particular words. And so he's going to lay before us over the next seven weeks uh, varying scenes related to people and activities and messages that Jesus is going to bring. All of these are designed to bring us back to what it means for us to see Jesus for who he is. So last series, we looked at verses 1 to 18. I promised you that we would pick up the pace a little bit, and we are uh, in this next uh, section. The first section was on what it means to believe in Jesus, and now this section, these seven weeks, are on what it is to behold uh, Jesus. I want to remind you that the central truth that John is driving at is found in John chapter 20, and here's how he said it. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. I mean, there's other things that Jesus did. John didn't record all of them. But these are written so that you may believe, and this is the key, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So the last section was on helping you to know the importance of belief in this section, John's going to help us to understand what are we to believe in, and so he's going to try and show us that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Son of God, so that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that's where John is leading us toward. His aim is to help us through story and through the teachings of Jesus come to see who Jesus really is. You may be here today and not yet a Christian. You're exploring. You've come at a really good moment. John is a really good book if you're not yet a Christian and you have lots of questions. You'll find people even in the story today who have questions and so, so thankful that you're here exploring what it means for Jesus to be one's savior. Today in particular, in verses 35 to 51, we're going to look at the disciples. We get our, our first glimpse into not only the person of Jesus, but also these people who followed him. And what you need to know is that these people, we'll talk about four of them today, were those who frankly changed the world. They, they took the message of Jesus and they spread it. In fact, 
If you're a Christian, the reason that you're a Christian is because these people took the gospel and they talked about it. Some of you over Christmas may have gotten one of those genealogy packets or those DNA packets where you can kind of figure out where your people are from and what area of the world, you know, your uh, generations ago, your forefathers were in. Well, if you were to trace back the, the ancestry of how you came to faith in Christ, eventually it would all converge back into the first century with the disciples who went and told people about Jesus. From a band of, a small band of men, the gospel spreads all over the world. So these disciples radically changed the world. They took the message. And the question then is, what was it about these particular disciples that caused them to change the world? So this morning from this text, what I want to do is help us to identify the eternal impact of these particular disciples, help us to see our own eternal impact, to be able to think, so what's my role in the carrying of the message if I'm a follower of Jesus, and what is it that God's calling me to do in particular? And in order to help you to see that today, what I want to do is look at four marks of world-changing disciples. So from the story here that we find from John about the first disciples that were called, what do we learn and how can we embrace a mindset or a, a, a point of a thought and application much like these disciples? So there's four of them. Here's the first one. These disciples were in awe of Jesus. Look at verse 35. The next day... Again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. Now, if you weren't here last week, this John that is referred to in verse 35 is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is a forerunner of Christ. He's there to prepare the way for Jesus. And one of the beautiful things about John the Baptist's ministry is this mindset that he has where Jesus must increase and he must decrease. And we're going to see that in a couple different ways in the text. In fact, one of the things I loved about Brad's message from last week as we started this eight-week series on what it means to behold is the statement that John the Baptist made where he said, I am not the Christ. What a great statement. I was thinking about that all week. It's a particularly important if you're in ministry to remember you're not the Christ. I remember um, early on, in my ministry at my first church, I was kind of at a hard spot and didn't know what to do, was feeling the burden, so I called my mentor, uh, Jim Greer, who was deeply connected to this church. He was the dean of the seminary. As I kind of laid out the problem to him, he said, hey, Mark, i got a question for you. And I said, yeah, what's that? And he said, just want to know, who's the Messiah? <laughs> and I said, oh, that would be Jesus. He said, good, I just wanted to be sure you still knew that. <laughs> Because what can happen is we can begin to think that we are the ones who are the savior of our children, of our people that we care for, of a friend who's stuck in an addiction, or just look around and see the brokenness of the world. Well, John says, I am not the Christ. Well, part of John's mission was platforming the person and work of Jesus. So verse 35, we see that John has his own disciples. There's two of them there. He looks, he sees Jesus as he's walking by, and he says, behold the Lamb of God. Now, this is not the first time that John has said this, and it certainly won't be the last. Apparently, this is sort of a theme in John's ministry where he's regularly telling people, behold the Lamb of God. In fact, the first time we 
heard this is in verse 29 where he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John is constantly pointing people to the Lamb. This idea of the Lamb of God is an interesting concept. If you were to look back into the Old Testament and kind of take a historical view, it could mean any number of things here. A lamb was used in the daily sacrifice. A lamb or a goat was used for the scapegoat sacrifice. A lamb was offered by Abraham instead of Isaac in the book of Genesis. Passover lamb became a central figure in the Exodus narrative. And even in Revelation chapter 7 and 17, there's this apocalyptic lamb that that comes as conqueror. And that was not an unknown concept within the first century. In other words, John, when he wrote the book of Revelation, didn't have this apocalyptic lamb as his own idea. It was part of the, the cultural narrative as well. What we do know is that John likely just simply means this is the long-awaited one. This is the Son of God. We know from other gospel accounts that John the Baptist, frankly, didn't even know the full extent of Jesus' ministry. Matthew tells us that later on, after Jesus starts his ministry, John sends his disciples and says to them to tell Jesus, or ask Jesus, are you the one or should we expect another? So John sees something in Jesus, but even he doesn't fully understand all of Jesus' ministry, which which should be really encouraging if you're here today and you're, you're searching, you're a skeptic, you have lots of questions. You ought to be encouraged. Everyone in the Bible had questions. Even people who are still now followers of Jesus have questions. What we find here is that John points to Jesus telling his disciples, behold, the Lamb of God. He's in awe of Jesus. He's enamored with Jesus. He sees the power of who Jesus is. And in fact, what then happens, look at verse 36, or 37 rather, the two disciples heard this, heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So these disciples were part of John's group. They were part of John's tribe, if you will. And when they saw Jesus, when they heard this description of him, They followed him. Notice, as great as their time had been with John the Baptist, they pursued Jesus to learn more about him. Why? Because they were in awe of him. There's something about Jesus that eclipsed their former calling. John didn't tell them to follow Jesus, but the reality of who Jesus was prompted them to then follow him. This is important for two reasons. First, if you're a Christian, can I just remind you, you can never lose sight of the awe of the person of Jesus. As you grow in your discipleship, as you grow in your understanding of the scriptures, as you become more spiritually mature, be careful because there can be this tendency that the more you know theologically, the more you know contextually, the more you know about the church, the more you understand things about Christianity, you can begin to love the church and not Jesus. You can love the Bible and not Jesus. You can love theology and not Jesus. You can love ecclesiology and not Jesus. You can love systems and not Jesus. And after a while, you begin to grow in this relationship with everything else but Jesus. If you disciple people, and I trust that you do, I want to remind you, Jesus must be in the forefront. Parents, as you disciple your children, you want them to love Jesus. You don't want them to follow Jesus just like you do. You want them to follow after Christ. If you counsel people, 
You want them not just to believe in the sufficiency of the scripture, you want them to believe that the scriptures are sufficient so they can see who Jesus is, so they can look more and more like him. That's why the mission of our church is igniting a passion to follow a theological system. Igniting a passion to follow this church. Igniting a passion to follow the elders. Igniting a passion to follow Reformed theology. No, it's igniting the passion to follow Jesus. You see, we have to help people love the Bible so they can love Jesus. Can I just ask you, as we start a new year, where's your love of Jesus right now? You know he knows. It might be helpful at the end of the service, we'll have some time for quiet reflection, for you just to tell Jesus what's going on in your heart and to say, Jesus, I'm here, but I'm not. I don't love you like I used to. Maybe you could use this beginning of the year just to set a, a new trajectory of a, of a heart that says, Lord, I want to have you unite my heart, as the psalmist says, to fear your name, to love you more. The second thing I want you to note here is that the disciples were not the only ones in awe of Jesus. John the Baptist was, in fact, also in awe of Jesus. Think of it. He lost two disciples that day, two guys that he'd done life with. Two guys that had followed him, they went and followed Jesus. But it was okay for John the Baptist, you know why? Because he knew who Jesus was. There was a greater work that needed to be accomplished because of who Jesus was, and so John held his disciples loosely. Today, over at the ministry center, we are launching One Fellowship Church. Since 2014, this will now be our fourth church plant. And can I just remind you why we plant churches? We plant churches because there are lost people in this city who are more likely to come to a church that is more closely located to them. Some of you live long distances away, and we're grateful that you come, and you can still keep coming. We're not going to you know, ask you how far you drove until you go home. But the fact of the matter is, if you drive 30 minutes and you ask your neighbor to come to church and they find out that you drive 30 minutes, it's, it's harder for them to come to a church that's not within close proximity. So we think that the better way to reach the city and the better way to reach lost people is church that is personal, local, incarnational, and on mission. And so we've planted a church in Fishers, we planted a church in Castleton, planted a church in Greenwood, and now we're planting one in Pike Township. And invariably, people ask, well, isn't it hard when we send people away? Because we're hoping 150 people go to Pike and help us plant that church in the YMCA. Unbelievable ministry opportunity that exists there just to be right up and close to people in the community. Is it hard? Sure, it's hard. There's some elders I know that TC's been talking to about going with them, and there's a part of me that's like, don't be talking to those guys, right? Those are my good ones, Right? I don't have bad ones, but you know what I mean. So, like, and, and I'm also I'm also told that um, hurry up, Mark, uh, that um, uh, that, that we sent away some some really good givers. I would imagine that's the case. I don't know if it's the case, but I would imagine that's the case. And some people would ask, well, what? Why do you do this? Here's why. Because I'm interested in seeing the kingdom of Jesus advance more than just seeing our church grow. Now, I want, us, I want us to grow. We have to grow. We have to keep growing to send more people away. We have to keep growing, have more people step up into ministry leadership, more people give, otherwise this whole thing doesn't work. But I don't want just a large church. What I want is I want the kingdom of Christ to be advanced all over the city, and I think churches being planted in those areas is the best way for that to happen. And at the end of the day, the primary motivation is I want 
Jesus' kingdom to be awesome, not College Park's kingdom to be awesome. So that comes from an earnest desire to see, behold the Lamb of God, to have people see who and what Jesus is. So disciples, first and foremost, are in awe of Jesus. Here's the second thing. They also follow Jesus. Look at verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said, come and see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and he stayed with them for that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Interesting here, follow. Our mission statement is a church, igniting a passion to follow Jesus. We chose that word on purpose because I think that word follow is really important. Disciples follow Jesus. They don't just believe in Jesus. They don't just know about Jesus. They follow Jesus. What's the difference? Well, if you believe, it means that you know who he is, and you must believe. But to follow means that there's a connection between what you believe and how you live. And isn't that when Christianity becomes really powerful? Not just with what you believe, but what you actually do. So these disciples follow Jesus. Jesus turns to them and says, what are you seeking? And then they, they ask him, where are you staying? This is sort of like if you were teaching a class and you talk to a student and this, you ask the student, hey, what's your story? And the student said to you, hey, c- can we grab coffee? You, you know that there's, a, there's another story behind this initial conversation. That's what's happening here. These disciples had some questions. They wanted to know more about Jesus, and so they spent the entire day with him. But what happens here is they make a concerted effort to follow Jesus. The tense in the original language implies that it was their intention to cast their lot with Jesus. It was a once and for all decision. Skip ahead to verse 43. We'll see somebody else who follows Jesus. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, isn't this interesting? With the other disciples, they found Jesus and they followed him. But in this case, Jesus found Philip and said, you follow me. You see, Jesus calls disciples in different ways. If we were to hear your story, if you're a Christian, about how you came to faith in Christ, your story, none of our stories would be exactly the same. What's interesting, though, here about Philip is that some New Testament scholars believe that the reason that Jesus pursues Philip this way is because of how he was wired, his personality, and even some of his weaknesses. One New Testament scholar, Leon Morris, suggests that Philip had to be sought because he lacked initiative and was more limited in his ability and in his boldness than others. For example, Other accounts of Philip's life would bear this out. And I'm not throwing Philip under the bus here. I'm just saying that he's maybe different than the brash Peter or the bold John. In Luke, or in John chapter 6, rather, when they're tasked with feeding the multitude, it's Philip who's overwhelmed and says, even if we had a large sum of money, we'd never be able to feed all of these people. And in John chapter 12, when Greeks are seeking to know who Jesus is and desire an audience with him, they talk to Philip, but Philip doesn't know what to do, so he goes to Andrew. So if these New Testament scholars are right, and I'm inclined to think that they are, this actually, I think, is a little encouraging because it reminds us that following Jesus is not just for the bold and the brash and the decisive. True, it's Peter that walks on water, but it's also Peter that denies Jesus. Following Jesus is also for the timid and the cautious. 
So you may be here and you may be a Christian, but you don't feel bold like other people. Someone tells you you need to go share the gospel with complete strangers, and that just kind of, whoo, it's not your thing. There's all kinds of people that follow Jesus in their own unique ways, and I hope that encourages you. The fact of the matter is, though, that God pursued you. He pursued you. All called to follow Jesus. What does that look like? Well, following Jesus, according to Jesus, looks like this. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus says that my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. So it's important for you to know that believing in Jesus and following Jesus go absolutely together. I trust you know that you don't receive Jesus as Lord after receiving him as Savior. You receive Jesus as who he is. He is Savior and Lord. You believe in him and you follow him. Now, that doesn't mean that we fully understand all of the extent to which we're gonna follow him. I trust that over your life, if you're a Christian, that you're growing in your understanding of the application of the gospel. You're finding new ways to apply what it means to follow Jesus. But fundamentally, it means that when you become a Christian, you say, I follow Jesus. And that means, listen, that your life, your words, your actions, your eyes, your heart belong to the King of kings and Lord of lords. Can we just all acknowledge that the world has seen plenty of people who claim to be Christians and don't live like it? Can we just say, the world agrees, the church agrees, that's not good. Could you not make that case stronger this year, please? Could you instead be the kind of person who follows Jesus such that people could say, "Mm, I know that person's a Christian, and man, they seriously live it. They are followers of Jesus. Igniting a passion to follow Jesus means that we exist not just to make people believers, but those who are followers. One writer named Trevin Wax says this, one of the greatest realizations a person can come to in in the early stages of Christian faith is that Christ's command to follow him means we should follow him and him alone. The call is one of unconditional surrender and total allegiance to his name. So those disciples who changed the world were not just those who claimed to believe in Jesus, they were those who followed Jesus, they lived for Jesus, they talked about Jesus, they were even ready to die for Jesus. One of the things about a new year is that it gets an opportunity for us just to reevaluate. Can I ask you just to maybe think during this month about where you are in terms of your quality of following Jesus. Here's the third thing. These disciples who changed the world, they bring people to Jesus. All of them did it. Look at verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Now notice he says they're one of two. So we know one of them was Andrew. Who's the other one? Well, most New Testament scholars think that it's actually the apostle John who wrote this book, so he's being modest. So John was a disciple of John the Baptist, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist, but Andrew goes and finds Simon Peter, and he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, 
We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Now, John puts this parenthetical thought, which means Christ in here, because Christ is a word that would resonate with the Greeks. Messiah was a word that re would resonate with Jews. He's trying to reach both. They both mean the same thing, essentially anointed one, the promised one, the Messiah, the one who has been promised. So here we have Andrew who goes and seeks out his own brother. This is the way that the gospel spreads. You heard because somebody told you if you're a Christian. Somebody told you the story of the gospel. And oh, that maybe on 2019 you ought to pray, God, would you open a door, open my mouth, and open the heart of people around me that you may just pray, Lord, once a month, would you give me an opportunity just to tell my story of how I have come to faith in Christ? You may not know how to share the gospel all that well. If you'd like to learn more, we have opportunities galore in our church to learn how to share the gospel. But at a minimum, what you can do is to tell people the story of how you came to faith in Christ. It's a powerful platform to demonstrate the work of God. Skip ahead now to verse 44. We see it again. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of David. So here's Philip, does the same thing. He goes and finds Nathanael. Now notice, Nathanael isn't overjoyed. He's not immediately receptive. In fact, he's just flat out skeptical. In fact, he's biased. He's like, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He just doesn't think that anything good can come out. He, yeah, this, this bias He's convinced that there's nothing good that could possibly come out of that city. And Philip said to him, come and see. So here we have these disciples. We have Andrew. We also have Philip, who their first inclination is to go and tell people. So this is consistent across the New Testament, that those who are the followers of Jesus talk about Jesus. And here's why. And here would be a key. If you want to talk about Jesus more, the reason that they talked about Jesus is because they were amazed at what they found in Jesus. So when you read the Bible and you're amazed at what you find, you're inclined to talk about it. Shall I prove this to you? I mean, for real, you find a cat video on Facebook and you tell everybody about it. Look how they push the little milk to each other. Oh, that's so cute. Look at this video I saw. Oh, this is hilarious. Watch this. And you just show it over and over and over and over and over and over and over. And you like it? Cat videos? Really? All right. You find gas in Brownsburg for $1.65. You're telling everybody. Even though people are saying, can anything good come out of Brownsburg? You know? What you're in love with, what you are passionate about is what you talk about. So if you want to be a better evangelist next year, if you want to tell people more clearly about who Jesus is, then brother, sister, who's a Christian, you need to fall in love with Jesus in a different way. You need to sing robustly. You need to listen intently. And the whole purpose of our gathering here on the Lord's Day is for the expressed intention of, of helping you to stoke into flame the passions that you should have for Jesus so you go out in the world and talk more about him. Because after all, the things that we are thrilled about are the things that we talk about. You know, one of the beautiful fruits of what happened this last week is just seeing the way that the gospel spread all over our city, nation, the world for that matter, through what happened here on Tuesday, Tyler's message, the funeral, everything. 
We're hearing amazing stories of impact. I could give you a number of them. Let me just share one of them with you. One of our pastors received this text in the days leading up to Tyler's funeral. Here's what it said. I was just listening to Hammer and Nigel on WIBC in the car. And they were talking about the Tyler Trent funeral arrangements. So they obviously mentioned College Park Church. I'm not sure which one it was, but one of them said, quote, I know that's a church that's going to take care of the Trent family because my neighbor invited me to their Christmas Eve service a couple weeks ago. I couldn't tell you the last time I went to church. It's been a year or two, but I went, and it was tremendous. You could just tell it was a church that really loves God and has some great people. Yeah! Yeah, 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 yeah! All right, all right. Why are you clapping about that? Come on, huh? We worked so hard for that to happen. Man, I'm so glad one of you listened. That's great. (laughs) Now, we know lots of you listen, and praise God, you can't manufacture that. You can't overly program that. What you can simply do is say, church, would you go out in the world and talk about Jesus and care about your neighbors and invite them, and the impact is unbelievable. Number four, they see the work of Jesus. It's not just that they follow him. It's not just that they stand in awe of him. It's not that they just invite people to him. But here's the thing. They get to see the work of Jesus. Verse 42, look at this. So Andrew brought Simon to Jesus. Jesus looked at him. Can you imagine this moment? And he said, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So on this day, Jesus, according to John, changed Peter's name and If you study the rest of John, you'll see the effect of this in Peter's life. This is a moment when Jesus is going to change Peter's life. He won't understand the full ramifications of this, but Peter is going to see the work of Jesus in himself, such that when Jesus dies and is raised from the dead, nobody can make Peter shut up about him. He couldn't stop talking about him. Why? Because he saw the work of Jesus inside his own soul. Then we see Nathanael. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, this is verse 47, Behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said, How do you know me? Jesus said, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael answered, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. What Nathanael sees is that Jesus understands all of this and his life is being orchestrated by Christ. Some of you know exactly what that's like. Some of you are here today because of that. You know that all of the events of your life have have been arranged, and you know that God is trying to tell you something. If you're not a Christian, here's what it is. It is namely that God is holy, you're not. That's a huge problem. The Bible tells us that sin is a, a disaster. It affects everything. It's why death is in the world. And the Bible tells us that the reason Jesus came is in order to solve the internal problem that you and I can't solve on our own, namely our brokenness and our sinfulness and our waywardness. And it may be that you're here and God's orchestrating the events of your life in order to help you to see that. You hear things you've never heard before. You see things you've not seen before. You feel things you've never felt before. God is the one who is behind that. And he has done that from the very beginning of time, even till now, drawing people to himself. So if you're here today and that's you, why not come to Christ today? Because that's what God's doing. He's wooing you, calling you, inviting you, giving you eyes to see what you've never seen before in order to be changed in a way you've never been changed before. 
text ends in verse 51. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's using an analogy from the Old Testament with Jacob's ladder. Jacob saw this dream with angels coming down and going up, the idea of God's intersection with the world. God was at work, God was at work, angels coming, angels going. And what Jesus says is you're gonna see the same thing, but they're gonna be coming up and down on me. In other words, you hang around me, you're gonna see things that are gonna blow your mind. And John sets this up because the next chapter is about the first miracle that Jesus does. In other words, you hang around me as a disciple, you're gonna see, Jesus says, things that are remarkable in the intersection between God's kingdom and the earth. One of the joys of being a disciple of Jesus is seeing that very thing. Just ask someone who counsels people when God puts marriages together or frees somebody from an addiction and you are sitting three feet away from a miracle that takes place. Just ask someone in our next generation area who sees a child's mind come alive with biblical truth, they come to realize, I'm a sinner. I mean, any child that knows that, it's a miracle, right? I'm a sinner, and they know the gospel, and they know the Ten Commandments, and they know how to follow in obedience, and you get to see that up close. Some of you, part of the reason your passion for Jesus is so distant is because your connection to serving and being engaged in any kind of ministry, it's been years And the tragedy is you don't get to see up front and close the work that Jesus is doing. I'll tell you, I went home from the Trent funeral just so in love with Jesus, so enamored with what he was doing. Somebody sent me this screenshot of a testimony that was online. This is from Scott Van Pelp, who's an ESPN broadcaster. He wrote this, flying home, never once opened the phone, no scores or social media, found myself thinking a lot about what I heard Pastor Vrogop, what I heard Pastor Vrogop said something that won't leave me if your life intersected with Tyler's. It wasn't an accident. I know that's the truth for me. What I said in that funeral is essentially that, that your life and Tyler's life intersected. If that's the case, God has a purpose behind that. And to be able to see the fruit of that ministry spread out, not just in one person, but in hundreds of people, not only makes you love the gospel, but it makes you love Jesus. Because Jesus is in the process of saving people. So if you're not a Christian, the invitation from this text is, you know it's time today. Why not become a Christ follower? Why not acknowledge your need and come to Christ? And if you are a Jesus-loving follower, let me encourage you. You could be named among those whose mission in life is to take the good news, to live out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and to make much of him. Because the disciples were not the only ones given the mantra and the mantle of changing the world with the gospel. So are we. Let's pray together. Before I lead us in prayer, I mentioned the sermon that I'd give you a moment, and this is that moment for you just to reflect on what it is that you've heard today. If you're not a Christian, maybe today would be the day when you pray something like this, Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner, 
I know that you're alive. I believe you were raised from the dead. I want to receive you even now as my Lord and Savior. Come, take over my life. And you may need to pray that very prayer today. The prayer in and of itself isn't some recipe that saves you, but it's the verbal acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord. You're here today as a Christian. Could you just talk to God about your condition as a follower of his? If you could pray, Lord, just I want my heart to be more in love with you. I want to read the Bible like I used to. I want to seek you. I want to obey. Maybe there's things even now you need to confess. Oh, Lord Jesus, We thank you that you are sufficient for everything we need. Thank you that you are on the move, bringing people to yourself. You are on the move, bringing conviction even to those who are your followers who need to step it up and need to grow. Thank you that there's a boatload of grace ready for those who will humbly acknowledge their need and turn to you. So help us. Help us, those of us who are Christians, to be followers of you who match what we live and what we say we believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.